that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican, which you can find at northamanglican.com. And I am joined today by Father Isaac Rayberg. Welcome, Father. Hello, this is Father Isaac Rayberg. I'm the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the uh, canon for liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West. And as always, so glad to be here. And it's always glad or good to have you, for sure. Um, Did you, by chance, uh, catch that last episode of Miserable Offenders that that Andrew was on? I I did indeed. I I was uh, sorry to miss it, and it was a good one. We were, of course, sorry to miss you and glad to hear that it uh, got your uh, seal of approval. Absolutely. and, you know, I, I wonder, I just wanted to see if, uh, since you weren't able to sit in on the conversation, if there were any sort of uh, comments or things that you think got missed or um, or simply uh, underscores or highlights that you think are, you know, were important takeaways from that discussion, especially on uh, the nature of the ministry and the priesthood in Anglicanism. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really good, like I said, it was a really good discussion. I, I, I especially enjoyed the, um, discussion of the priesthood and, um, and, and I, I do think as y'all, y'all touched on that, um, you know, Moore's, Moore's biases are coming through again <laughs> right? <laughs> with, with, yep. his, with his, with his perspective on the priesthood, um, you know, that, that difference between, um, the presbyter and the sacerdos, um, and and I, I do think we see, we certainly see in the classical uh, formularies, in the writings of Hooker and those folks that this this idea of a sacrificing priesthood, they're keeping that pretty at arm's length. Um, you know, we we certainly see that popping up later. But, um, but yeah, that, that sacrificing priesthood uh, is just not really what they want to emphasize. Right. And, and, of course, it has been argued from a Protestant stance that um, there is, of course, an element of sacrifice that is, you know, we, we give up ourselves, right? Right. Um, and also, you know, there's a presentation of elements, and which is, you know, sort of uh, the the means by which the uh, you know the sacrament is uh, going to take place, and so it, that can sort of be, you know, I think argued to say, well, there's there are elements of sacrifice, but that does need to be pretty clearly distinguished from 
say, the standard Roman Catholic view of what kind of sacrifice is taking place, and more importantly, the fact that they see themselves really as a continuation of this uh, Old Testament form of priesthood. Um, right. And so, you know, our big point is to say, no, that's fulfilled. The sacrifice happened, and we're always pointing back to that moment. And, and I was I was a little disappointed in, in more in this, that he kind of hung out in the Latin usage rather than the Greek usage of the scriptures itself. Mm. Um, because in the Greek, we, we do see... Um, two different words that come to, to us in English as priests. Um, the, you know, the, the one that we do get um, presbyter from, um, yeah, presbyterus, and then the other one being um, hieros. And the, you know, and, and you, if you've ever seen a, a deck of tarot cards, they've got the hierophant dressed as a priest, you know, that, that kind of idea. Hmm. But that, that word, for, for that, that word for priest is only used in the New Testament for pagan priests and the Jewish priests. It's never applied to the Christian leadership. Interesting. And so that that that, that I find kind of interesting. Although in the in the in the fathers in the church fathers, the Greek fathers do use the two terms completely interchangeably. They do not make a distinction between the two terms. Yeah, there's a lot. There is a lot to parse there, isn't there? Um, it, one one unfortunate thing about the way Moore sort of framed the whole conversation from the get-go, in my mind, was to say, you know, he sort of repeats the old, um, which seemingly is a kind of uh, less uh, authoritative saying of Anglicanism being a via media between. Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and if that's the what it is if it's basically Geneva or Rome then he says clearly the Anglicans are following Rome when it comes to the priesthood <laughs> right. and and it's like well um, you know if if what you mean by that is that the Anglicans observe ritual and that they were vested and that there's a certain um, orderliness to the services uh it, you could i think the argument could be made but again this sort of um it's all about how the question is being framed it's like giving a survey and expecting you know expecting honest answers but really the way you frame the question is going to determine the kinds of answers that people give and i think knowing what people know now and, and especially it's um, important to understand this, that with the um, presence of ritual and orderliness in uh, Lutheran circles since the get-go sort of places this idea that um, if you're doing those sorts of things, it's distinctly un-Protestant or that's this sort of, you know, foreign or even Italian influence um, that that makes for another end of the spectrum it, as false. I think, uh, and, and this was something that would again become a point of rhetoric in the 19th century for the Tractarians. But yeah, as long as we're saying, well, 
where does where does Anglicanism fall between uh, Geneva and Rome? I think we're going to come up with answers that are just not very histor- historically or realistically satisfying. You had mentioned an article um, in the last episode where they, I believe, it was written by a Lutheran who was discussing the use of of Luther by the ritualists and the evangelicals in 19th right. century Church of England. Great article, by the way. Um, I, I had read that myself um, uh, earlier earlier that week. And um, I, 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 one thing that, that just popped up again and again as I read that, as I've read more and more stuff from the 19th century, is how much both sides were overstating their point to score points against the other side. Yeah, absolutely. So the you know the evangelicals end up you know completely downplaying classical Anglican sacramental theology and looking more like even lower than than Calvin in their sacramental theology mm-hmm. because they're trying to score points against the ritualists and then the ritualists you know look Romanizing because they're trying to score points against the the evangelicals. And it's 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 silly, but we do have some of those. Some of those battles continue today. It's it's really odd, but it's true. Indeed, you can find uh, you can certainly find a web forum or a Facebook group to represent uh, something that looks like one or the other side of that battle from the 19th century today. <laughs> um, and yes, it, this really just underscores what for me has been um, maybe uh, an insight that I've keep coming back to since, uh, you know, since I really sort of became interested in theology, which is to say that um, dogmas and theology and um, even philosophy that's done from a point of uh, polemics is almost never done honestly. Yeah, yeah. And you, it's if 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 you're mining a text to score points against the bad guys, um, really honestly, how likely is it that you're actually doing that text and its author's intentions justice? And so I think, and th- this is a warning to anybody on any side of any um, dispute, really, is to don't be so. Um, sort of eager to slam dunk on your opponent that you kind of make a mockery of this resource that presumably is one that you view as authoritative and uh, worthy of not making a mockery of. <laughs> Anytime so, you see an article that is titled so-and-so destroys so and such and such point yes. in two minutes. It's like, oh, this is going to be worthless. <laughs> right. I'm like, no. no Even no. if I agree with you, it's going to be worthless. <laughs> right. And, and that kind of rhetoric, what does it do? All it ever does is it preaches to the choir. It sort of, yes. it, it makes your group feel more confident about their position. And, Look, if, if your position is true, being confident in it is not an altogether bad thing. But it's not going to win anyone over to your side. Certainly not people in the middle. I mean, very often, um, if you're not necessarily convinced one way or the other, 
Um, it can be the sort of bad behavior of one group or the other that pushes you to the other one. Right. So, yeah, good, very good points. And I'll have to see if I can uh, remember to throw up that article on the show notes page or something along those lines. But um, all of that being said, we've got a, a little more progress to make in this Roman numeral section. And I believe we're heading into the altogether uncontroversial waters of Anglican Eucharistic theology. <laughs> no controversies at all there. <laughs> no, no. So if this is the episode that makes everyone mad, then, um, hey, I guess we'll just be surprised that it took this long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I'll go ahead and... Taking a look at the reading here, the bigger the the first paragraph is a bit of a beast, but I'll take it and uh, we can sort of parse it and pick it apart here. How's that sound? Sounds good. All right. In so far as the Anglicans theorized at all about the how of the sacrament, the prevalent view would seem to have followed Calvin and on one side of St. Augustine in using the language of dynamic or instrumental symbolism, the physical participation, as Hooker expresses it, is, quote, instrumentally a cause of that mystical participation, end quote, and a favorite metaphor for the symbolic power of the consecration was to liken the elements to a legal document before and after the attachment of the royal seal. But they were not entirely coherent, or one gathers very deeply concerned in such explanations. Hooker avowedly adopts his instrumentalism as a kind of common denominator upon which Lutheran and Roman and Anglican might agree in peace, since it, quote, hath in it nothing but what the rest do all approve, end quote. And in general, such theories, when they occur, have the air of half-hearted attempts to find a substitute for the tridentine dogma of transubstantiation, which is denounced quite wholeheartedly as bad theology and bad philosophy and as a legacy of error under which the Roman Church owing to its presumption of infallibility, must stagger on forever. Oftener, and more characteristically, the Anglican theologians refused, on principle, to theorize at all on the how of sacramental efficacy. So Andrews, quote, Christ said, this is my body. He did not say, this is my body in this way, end quote. So Usher, scorning the untenable metaphysics of Trent, declares that the real presence must be left an inexplicable mystery, and Bramhall sums up the whole contention with the theorists of either party, Roman or Protestant, finally and definitely. We know not, he insists, whether the real presence is by transubstantiation or consubstantiation, by production or conservation, 
or adduction or assumption, and he quotes the great dictum attributed to Durandus of Chorn, motum sentimus modum nesimus prescientium credimus. And here endeth the first passage of the uh, essay. With a famous dictum that I am not familiar with and uh, I'm going to look into. <laughs> yes, I'm uh, just happy that you got all the hard Latin that time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does seem that the hard Latin passages get uh, pretty evenly dis dispersed amongst us. Um, so... Any thoughts just right off the bat here from uh, from Moore? Um, yeah, a few a few things. Um, the uh, one one thing that tends to not be well represented in most places. I mean, this this is one of this is a very nuanced um, deal. Is the main difference between the reformed perspective on how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper and the Lutheran perspective. Right. Um, and I, I was, the first time I heard about this was in a panel discussion, um, you know, trying to figure it out. I, I listened to, a, I, 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 I listened to a lot of Lutheran podcasts. I listened to a lot of reform podcasts. I read a lot of Lutheran authors, a lot of reformed authors of all, sure. the, all the respective. And it really took a panel discussion on the white horse in for, for this to really, gel for me and then I could see it everywhere and the the Lutheran perspective is that Christ is present in the supper due to the ubiquity of his human nature when it's when it's joined with the divine so so they will speak of Christ as being physically present because his body um, you know sacramentally but still physically present because his human body can be everywhere since it's since the, his humanity um, has is joined to the divinity, right? The reform perspective is that Christ's human body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and that he is present spiritually by the mediation of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament. Um, and, and they would argue that that's no less a real presence. But but this this is a this is really the major difference between the two the two camps, and the reform would see the Lutherans as um, flirting with monophysitism with in, in their perspective, and the Lutherans would see the reformed as um, flirting with um, basically in other ways violating Chalcedonian. Um, theology, you know, sep you know, the reformed are separating the uh, the natures too much. The Lutherans are confusing the natures too much. Right. Yes. And and the only thing I think I would add on there to what you've said is that, um, in the in that sort of an account of the mode or means by which Christ is present in the sacrament. Right. right. The other sort of distinction that, um, or different difference of emphasis, is that the Lutherans tend to view this as a presence, they'll say, in, with, and under the elements. And so consecration 
means after after the point of consecration, the body is locally present in the bread. The blood is locally present in the blood, or, or the wine, sorry. Whereas in the sort of classic Calvinist review, there's something more like receptionism, as opposed to, I guess, the other view is sometimes called consecrationism, um, where the presence is, uh, Christ is made present to the believer who faithfully re- receives in the moment of the reception. Right. And so right. there's a sense in which, yes, the bread is a vehicle for that reception, but there's no sense in which Christ is present until um, the believer faithfully eats. And of course I say that knowing that um, the Reformed tradition especially is not monolithic necessarily, Um, and the Lutheran church or tradition does seem to have a little bit of wiggle room, or at least I've been told so by Lutherans, but boy, I don't know if that's quite as true. Um, so yes, I think you're right, is that reformed view of, of Jesus being uh, on the right side of his father, um, sometimes called the extra Calvinisticum, and then this other, this other uh, you know, theory of ubiquity, which I think we can honestly say that even Lutherans will admit is sort of a unique development in the dogma of the church is there is that a contested claim do you know um i i, I heard some dudes on issues etc talking about this and they were trying to make the case that it was not but that it was just the implications of chalcedon um i i found the argument a little forced to be honest it, it does seem to be that that emphasis in everything I've read, that emphasis does seem to be, um, yeah, a unique development within the Lutheran mm-hmm. tradition. And, and it seems that a lot of that is born out of, you know, speaking of polemics, it, it's born out of the disagreements between Calvin and Zwingli. I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, Luther and Zwingli right. um, in the early days. Um, whereas then, then you see, you know, Calvin is a little bit more moderate. I mean, Zwingli is is way off on one end. Um, Calvin's more moderate. You see Melanchthon trying to moderate between Calvin and Luther's Luther's positions, um, and he gets a lot of flack from the Lutherans for that. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's really funny because the because a lot of Calvinists I know will will blame the distinctives of Lutheranism on Melanchthon, but the but the Lutherans will say that Melanchthon was trying to compromise with the Calvinists. Right, those those Philippists who yes, wanted exactly. uh, to move things in that direction, and I believe in the last episode I mentioned, I think I did, I'm not sure, but um, the uh, Wittenberg Concord, I believe, yes, um, which was uh, Bucer, who would later become instrumental in sort of uh, as a go-to for Cranmer when it came to his sort of final revisions of the the Book of Common Prayer while he was still living. Um, And Bucer is a fascinating figure because he was so passionate about 
unifying both the Reformed and the Lutherans, who um, these days, this is like the greatest dividing wedge between those two groups, um, as far as I can tell. And um, he actually was able to present this uh, little confessional document, or agreement at least, and if you look at the signatories, you've got Reformed guys, you've got both Luther and Melanchthon and Butzer, and um, and they all are able to sort of agree to a bare-bones, uh, you could say, account of the Lord's Supper. And so that's, you know, something I find very inspiring, and it makes me wonder if those of us from Reformation churches who have all sort of gone down our own paths in, uh, and maybe become even in, further entrenched in um, disputes ought to look back at moments when agreement wasn't quite as difficult and see if there is something to be derived or um, appreciated or um, returned to even if if that's possible I do tend to think that Anglicanism allows for a greater variety in these um, considerations than either of the other two traditions what do you think of that I think it does I mean we, we our formularies, Th their language does lean more towards the um, kind of spiritual and almost receptionist um, language, but it's but it's vague enough that that's not required. If, if that makes sense, right? I mean, and and there's a sense in which Lutherans will say, well, of course, um, the believer receives by faith, right? Um, and so it's all, it's all a matter of how much importance and weight you put on individual words and whether or not those become sort of, uh, entry points or anchors for tacking on, uh, secondary and tertiary doctrines. And I am kind of of the opinion that yes, our, these documents need to be understood in their context. But also, um, the, the King's introduction to the 39 Articles, which is sort of intended to settle so many disputes, especially between Calvinists and Arminians, um, really does ask us to take them at their sort of verbal, grammatical meaning. And insofar as, you know, the people have honestly um, claimed their authority, he says, on these various disputes, we have to honor that as um, them as faithful churchmen. And so, again, um, and this may just be uh, my take, but I, I am of the opinion that when it comes to the things of God, um, a certain degree of mystery must be permitted um, it's not as though he doesn't tell us some things and, and some things very clearly and explicitly. Um, but 
there's a sense in which we can all be approaching the truth and at least admitting that um, a comprehensive knowledge is not necessary, perhaps, for us to agree on what we on what is most important, nor even possible, perhaps. So I've that's heard, just yeah, and, and you know, regarding the that that mode of, of Christ's presence and how Christ is present in the supper. I've heard I've heard Lutheran Lutherans say something to the effect of, "Well, you can tell if they really believe in the real presence by what happens if the unbeliever partakes in the supper. Are they really partaking of Christ?" And you, oh, look, the, the article says the wicked do not eat Christ when you know they press. It was you know in, in the thirty nine article, so therefore the mm-hmm. Anglicans don't really believe in the real presence. Yet that article, what it does say is rather than partaking in Christ, they're partaking in damnation. And and it's okay, so if nothing happens without faith, then why are they getting damnation? You know? Right. I mean it's 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 a very it's a very talking past each other point of view. And, and I think it goes way beyond what the scriptures and the fathers really, really dealt with. I, I have to agree with that 100%. Um, and this is why I personally am drawn more to Anglicanism than I am to some of the more, uh, the Protestant traditions that have these lengthy confessional documents, because I look at these things and I say, well, I was just reading St. Augustine on the sacrament. I don't know if he'd be permitted to uh, to commune at your church, right, you know. Right. <laughs> it's like oh, if if this extended, you know, um, sort of dogmatic detailing. Oh no, it must be this way, and 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 this. And I understand that again. This is the result of uh, you know, sort of a century of dispute and fighting enemies at all sides. Um, but I personally just don't think it's the best approach. And it does sort of yeah raise that question of, really, are we unchurching the, um, the vine from which we are a branch? You know, and I think that's a good question that some people need to, need to wonder about. You had mentioned last episode some of the the um, ecumenical dialogues between the ACNA and um, some of the other other folks, such as the um, NALC Lutherans, um, mm-hmm. who, who, who I believe we do have. ACNA has full table pulpit fellowship with with NALC. I believe I could be yeah. wrong on that. It sounds. It sounds right. <laughs> we should. We should. <laughs> we'll do our homework. Yeah, we need to do some homework on that. Worry. <laughs> and then you know, even with the LC, you know, there's been talks with the LCMS. Um, I, shoot, I even heard of um, some like messianic congregations, messianic Jewish congregations that were interested in coming mm. under the umbrella of the ACNA. Once upon a time, I don't know whatever happened with that. But there's been, and I, I think we've seen in, as America and just Western culture in general get so much more hostile culturally towards Christianity. There, there is this need for, for working together, and I think everybody realizes that. Right. Um, you know, my my own bishop is very good friends with his Roman Catholic counterpart in his city. Um, they go to lunch together. 
and they mm-hmm. love it because chances are they're going to get a free lunch because one of their parishioners <laughs> on either side is running things, you know? Nice. <laughs> you know, and, and, and they, yeah, and he, he was, yeah, the Roman Catholic bishop was at our last synod giving an opening talk. And, you know, and, and my, my bishop is an, is an unapologetic Calvinist. You know, he, 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 they would not agree on a lot of important doctrinal matters, but they can still have fellowship. They can still pray together. Um, they can give each each other their their respective blessings and 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 we can it's good it's good isn't that um <laughs> this sort of speaks and, and I think we should probably return to the text here soon but it I was just thinking of uh, this relationship between your bishop and the the Roman Catholic bishop it sort of speaks to this weird sociological phenomenon that especially I think happens within uh, orthodoxy, um, sort of Christian, different brands of orthodoxy, which is to say, uh, especially, you know, I'll just use the Anglican um, context. If you're a reformed leaning Anglican, you're likely to be more friendly with an actual Roman Catholic than you might be with an Anglo Catholic. And, I was and that's just thinking that, yeah. It's not to say that your your bishop in particular would be unfriendly towards Anglo Catholics, but only to say, and of course it works the other way. If you're an Anglo Catholic, you sort of are more understanding of the uh, the Presbyterian next door than the Reformed churchman who um, seems to be speaking for your tradition in a way that is not your way. But yeah. Yeah, that's that's something to think about, and that's. Yeah, and that's that's not a good thing, and I, I think we can all be guilty about of that. So yeah, that's that's oh that's that's convicting. <laughs> <laughs> As we all uh, meditate on our on our own sin, um, and it is Lent, so that's appropriate. That's uh, Father, do you want to take that next paragraph, and we can uh, see what's going on there? Certainly. Next paragraph. Why God should choose this special channel of sacramental grace, we know not, any more than we know why his eternal purpose for the redemption of mankind should have necessitated the awful fact of the incarnation. How the sacrament works, we know not any more than we know how the death of his Son is made the instrument of eternal life. In such matters we are brought face to face with the causes and operation of providence, which reach up into the vast transcendental all surrounding circle of the supernatural. But we do know by experience, motum sentiments, what faith and practice affect in our own souls. Here is not a reckoning of probabilities, but an immediate impress of reality growing ever from less to more distinctness. And perceiving the Eucharistic elements do so operate, we believe in a supernatural power imparted to them, presentium credimus. Well, we get some of the uh, translation of that Latin there. Thanks, Mr. Moore. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to Google it, and my, my Google does not like those Latin phrases. Yeah, uh, same here. I, I guess I could just try the straightforward uh, Google Translate. I don't know if that's what you were you tried, but... Um, I did get directed towards other Anglicans using the same... Um, 
the same phrase. Well, here's what Google Translate says. It says, motion sensing, we do not know the place. We believe that. <laughs> so, That's not very helpful. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, but a if bad we, fortune cookie. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but f instead of motion sensing, if we say, as more directs us, we know by experience. Okay, so that's sensing experience. We get that. And then um, the later part, we believe in a supernatural power imparted to them as opposed to... So that's the we believe that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, we believe from experience, it would seem, that there's something special going on here. Which... To me, sounds a little bit like uh, Lex Orande, Lex Credendi. Does that make yeah. that seem like a parallel, perhaps? I, I, I think it is, and, and I think that um, when he talked about, you know, we don't really why why he would do this with the sacraments any more than he would do the incarnation, how the death works, how the sacraments works, and that just is, you know, we just leave that up to the mystery of God. And I he's he's very he's right about that that these are parts of those divine mysteries that we best mm -hmm. not delve too detailed into for we don't have the information to do so. I do think the scriptures probably give us more than um, than more is is acknowledging in that all of these things have antecedents in the Old Testament right. that help shed light. I'm not sure that more is picking up on that. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And, um, well, I mean, I suppose from my own sort of experience, a lot of the uh, writing that's been done on sort of uh, the Jewish precedence of the Eucharist and um, whether it's in the Todah feast or of Thanksgiving or in um, the story of Israel's exodus, that's uh, reenacted at Passover. Um, I think some of this learning, and, and frankly, um, sort of the deep dive into the Jewish culture and the Jewish um, sort of background of the New Testament has been maybe a, a newer, you could say, emphasis in scholarship. Um, yeah. In Moore's day, you did have Alfred Edersheim um, doing some work on that, mm -hmm. um, and Edersheim is is wonderful. His his tome, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, it's a classic. It's huge, and it's just a delight to read. Um, and more, I'm sorry, um, Edersheim was a convert from Judaism, and he was eventually a a, a, a priest in the Church of England. Mm. Um, yeah, he grew up he grew up in um, somewhere in Eastern Europe. I forget where off the top of my head. Um, as, an, as an Orthodox Jew. I think he was a rabbinical student at that point. Interesting. And so his Life and Times book, he really gives kind of the, the, the cultural background based on his studies for what's going on in the gospel narratives. And, he, and, it's, and it serves almost like a harmony of the narrative of the gospels. Um, as well. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and he's an excellent writer. I mean, his command in English is amazing for someone, you know, period, but but for someone yeah. who, whose language, first language was not English, it's just amazing, which is beautiful English. Well, I'm sold on the book now. 
I'm gonna have to go pick <laughs> that up. <laughs> Add it to the library. Yes, indeed. Um, well, it, and I wonder if this may have just been more sort of leaning towards a uh, metaphysical sort of preference. I mean, that does seem to have been maybe a theme throughout this essay. When he yeah. says, especially the awful fact of the incarnation, I can't help but think that um, this reflects what St. Paul calls, you know, like a stumbling block to, or, or the, it was like, it's a foolishness to the Greeks. And, you know, I, I teach philosophy to um, high schoolers, and when we go through, you know, Plato and Aristotle, and there really is a sense that the Greeks, especially those two figures who would become important to Christian thinking, um, may have had a sort of conception that there is a great sort of first cause type deity up there in the sky somewhere, but not one that would have any reason whatsoever to even for a moment care what we have about what we're doing <laughs> or, you know to enter into the the dealings of mankind now of course for philosophers in ancient greece this was a turn towards the rational um and a turn away from the sort of many temples to the gods of olympus and so it gods which one might say were a bit overly involved in the dealings of mankind sometimes inappropriately um and so (laughs) and so you can sort of sympathize that this this emphasis on the sort of metaphysical necessity of what such a god would be like and then sort of wanting to really hone down on the uh the fact that well such a person wouldn't be acting like zeus to say the least um, but so I, yeah, I do wonder if, you know, this idea of the awful fact of the incarnation, I mean, certainly there is a, a description of the humility that of Christ to take on flesh, but, um, golly, from our perspective, it's not awful at all. Is it? I mean, I, I think it's a wonderful gift. And of course, that's why that is the theme of Christmas is like, wow, lucky us, <laughs> you know, we're, we we have we have a lot to be grateful for here. Yeah, and and I, I I found myself wondering if he's using the word awful in a different sense than we might. I don't like know. Wonderful, maybe. Yeah, yeah, almost awesome rather than awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't I don't know if he is or not. Um, right, we don't but, want to read too much into this and uh, sort of say he's saying something that he's not. So right. that's fair. And, and it's you know and the the whole thing of this humility, Christ's humility. That that's that's the epistle for this for tomorrow, in the in the one year lectionary from Philippians two. I mean, it seems to be a big part of the theme of this time of the year. Right. Um, yeah, and oh, and I, I should I should I should um, you know, clarify. I, I don't I don't think Edersheim was mainstream in those days, even though he was writing those days. Hmm. I, th- I think he, 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 he didn't really get on the radar beyond certain academic circles until relatively recently, I believe. So um, so you're, you're probably right about that kind of connection, that, that Jewish connection not being on the radar. Um, yeah. 
Well, I, I'm reminded that uh, Austin Ferrer, in his early writings, wrote something like in in defense of uh, <laughs> what is what is the uh, the the big the big heresy that Augustine was uh, always always condemning. Oh, uh, Pelagi- Pelagianism, or or, or, or no. Or, um, the other, the, the other one, the sort of platonic. Manichi, one. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. It's like in in defense of Manichaeism or something along those lines. Like, <laughs> which is which is to say that you know he wanted to perhaps react against the sort of um, crass materialistic readings of the scriptures in his day and really amp up sort of the supernatural. God does transcend sort of aspect of Christianity, and obviously these are these are realities that um, come together in the incarnation. And we would be uh, foolish to try to save one by um, discarding or uh, diminishing the other. Um, all that said, I do kind of like this sensible. I guess this kind of gets back to Anglican practicality. But this sort of um, sensible approach to saying, basically, we this is a practice of us as a people, as Christian people, and we do it and we have faith in it because, in part, because it has been the way that we've done it. And it there's a sort of received tradition and... Um, doing things because you've received them, even though you don't fully understand everything about them, isn't a terrible approach to the mysteries of God. Um, I, I don't think we should eschew knowledge or wisdom or sort of uh, wallow in ignorance when when God's really trying to show us something. But um, I, don't, I don't think this attitude is a bad one necessarily either. And there's some, there's some pastoral practicalities to that kind of thing too. Um, you know, we we um, last uh, last fall, our longtime altar guild directress passed away, and so we've been in a period of transition as far as um, mm. running altar guild stuff. Um, and and one of one of the things that happens when you're a parish that's been around for 40 years is that you can accrue a lot of traditions that you don't you know <laughs> why do we do that i don't know nobody knows why we do that <laughs> you know and right. uh, follow-up question people... does anyone enjoy it <laughs> right yeah that, that happens and that happens all the time and and we were we were kind of working through some of this recently and um someone brought out that brought up that there is a an altar guild manual that um archbishop foley beach had done the preface to um, mm. just in the last few years, it was put out by kind of a joint thing between the Diocese of the South and um, the, um, oh gosh, that that kind of parachurch Anglican ministry, the ACC, not, not the Anglican Catholic Church, the other uh, one. Uh, Consultative Council. Yes, yes, thank yes. you. <laughs> and um, and so we, we, maybe we should just, and and it worked, it worked out just kind of as I was looking through this, as I discovered through this process that as the rector, I actually am supposed to be in charge of this, <laughs> <laughs> which goes against everything that everybody has said. When you're the rector, leave those guys alone, but you know, they'll make you miserable if you don't. Uh, that but funny. that's, that's kind of the joke. But, um, 
But but you know just okay. There's something that we have received that doesn't explain all the traditions, but at least it gives us a standard. You know, right. not certainly not like the Book of Common Prayer, but it does give us a standard to go by rather than the whims of the director or the altar guild director or um, you know grandma from yeah. three generations ago who told you this is the way it's supposed to be done. Well, that's a terrific uh, example and a great insight. It really does sort of tease out the uh, that this really is kind of it seems to be an essential part of Christ, just being a Christian. I mean, none of us um, is born or baptized into the church, and then the doctrine of the Eucharist or the or the reality of the sacrament is you know then given to us no it's we're born into something that's been going on for millennia and it's really sort of uh you know the christian life is is this whole process of catechesis that never really stops there's right you you enter into it before you fully grasp it and that's a very um dare I say, Catholic and Anglican insight. Um, and, it, and I think it goes into the sort of complaint of the, the, the modern liturgy uh, enthusiasts, and especially as they say, well, you know, the old prayer book, you might as well make people memorize Shakespeare or whatever. And I think, look, there's nothing about church on Sunday morning that is anything that really resembles anything in the rest of the culture even if you do use a modern liturgy you know and and that liturgy is going to have to be memorized eventually you know you're going to have to learn it one way or the other and if the words are a little different and that doesn't really um, remove the fact that they are attached to um, complex ideas that it's sort of the church's task to explain and to um you know offer light and insight to and of course the parents are you know uh, adding to this at home as well but it, it really does seem that no matter no matter which side of the spectrum you are on these things um there are church practices would need to be entered into before they're fully understood i don't think you can get away from that now, when it comes to, to liturgy, when it comes to a lot of this stuff, the challenge is always more going to be training the parents than training the kids. Mm. The kids just accept it because that's what they, <laughs> that's Absolutely. What they know. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that sort of plays out in sort of, to some extent, I don't want to overplay this hand, but I do think it, it does tend to be true very often that there's a genera a generational divide in the sort of quote unquote liturgy wars and younger people are not um they don't look at a traditional liturgy and say this is stuffy this is dead faith they just don't generally have that immediate reaction it almost seems like that's a um, that is a react. It, I think it's probably an honest reaction to very specific communities that other people grew up in in a different time. Um, I don't want to downplay that, but I don't think it's the only reaction to formal liturgy and tradition. I think that, um, as you put out, 
or as you just stated, um, younger people, especially children, they just accept it. Like, well, this is what we do. And, and it uh, might be that when those children grow up after spending their whole life in the traditional liturgy, they, you know, decide that they want something different. And, you know, because that's that's how sure. you know, the boomers grew up with the traditional and they didn't want right. it, you know. <laughs> well, that, that's it, it, reaction, you know, thesis antithesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where it Yes. That's right, folks. We've moved into Hegelism or Hegelianism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we really are out to make people mad this episode. Goodness. Oh yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> but but no. I think you're you're right. There's there's always the possibility that there's a cycle, and of course, on the other hand, there's always the possibility of a congregation um, using forms and traditions that are received, but also. Um, sort of enveloping those sort of bare bones of the church and fleshing it out with a lively and caring and loving faith that people will never want to leave. So right. both because things are possible. Are gonna, yeah, people are going to care a lot more about the the culture of the church, the local congregation regarding um, the interpersonal dynamics, um, the the... Uh, you know, is the gospel preached? Mm-hmm. Are people growing in their faith? And they are about the liturgy, right? Yeah, so even it's... though the liturgy is behind all that, you know, people will put up with music they don't like or liturgy they don't like if mm. they're if they're getting things that they see are more important. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I'm sure, as as a priest, you have more you have way more experience with me in sort of uh, dealing with people and sort of the issues that happen in separation and relationships. But it does always seem that um, you meet someone and they're talking, dogging on their ex, and it's, yeah. well, they were all, oh, I can never look at another blue car or, you know, brown loafers are the worst, you know. And it's like, okay, is this really getting to the heart of the matter of why this person um, really hurt or disappointed you in a in a deep emotional and spiritual way? It, it just, it seems like when something was deemed wrong, then the whole package sort of becomes identifiers for what was really going on yep. so all of that being said uh is it my turn to read it is it your is. turn <laughs> all right I'll, <laughs> I'll take a stab at it here this is the pragmatic argument from effect to cause which permeates the theology of anglicanism not only in the 17th century but from the time of henry the eighth to the present day If there is any outstanding note of the English temper, it is a humility of awe before the divine mysteries of faith and a recognition of the incompetence of language to define the ultimate paradox of experience. It is a pragmatism not of the lips only, as with the scholastics of the past or the present, but from a deep conviction that the rationalization of the supernatural is always a danger of pushing on to a formula which magnifies one half of the truth to an absolute by excluding the other half. As Cudworth, one of the most metaphysical of the Caroline theologians, expressed it, quote, neither are we able to enclose in words and letters 
the life, soul, and essence of any spiritual truth, and as it were to incorporate it in them, end quote. That, that's a really good observation on Moore's part. Uh, I, I think that that really gets to the heart of a lot of what we were just talking about, you know, with the yeah. liturgy wars, with the um, uh, that, that disagreement between the Lutherans and the Reformed over the, the, the mode of Christ's presence. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And, and I, I just hasten to, you know, explain maybe that this is certainly not going to be satisfying factory for a lot of people. Um, and I, I think we all sort of <laughs> have a tendency to bring to Anglicanism um, different sort of preferred systems that can kind of offer a little more explanatory power, um, especially, you know, the, the more theological among us. But at the end of the day, there is, yeah, that sort of practical humility when it comes to what he calls the ultimate paradox of experience. And I'm not sure if I, you know, although I'm certainly uh, welcome entertaining different ideas and different possibilities, um, I, I really do prefer the Anglican reluctance to um, elevate those possibilities to the level of dogma on so many issues. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and that, that reminds me of, really, this whole conversation has reminded me of, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to quote it verbatim, but C.S. Lewis's advice about reading old books, mm. um, how that helps us see our own blind spots, because we always are going to have our own blind spots based on our time and our culture and when we read deeper and wider and older that that really helps um clear that up and I, i've certainly found that for in you know in my reading when, when i have read outside the tradition more um it helps me to see some of those blind spots within the tradition as well as seeing some of the blind spots with, with what i'm reading i mean everybody has blind spots mm -hmm. somewhere and um, which, which is why it's so good to read deep and wide. I agree. And, and I think we as Anglicans have to sort of accept and, and even, I would say, celebrate not... Um, we'll celebrate this sort of hesitation, you could say, towards um, creating a dogmatic formulation for, for each and every um, issue as... You know, this is this is not a a uh, cowardice. This is not um, wanting to just sort of uh, compromise for the sake of political gain. But this really is, um, I think, a principled can be uh, sort of embraced as a is a principled approach to the things of God. It's not that you are necessarily saying there there isn't more that could be said here but um it does take sort of <laughs> a lot for me especially to say there might be more that could be said here but i don't know if i would want to enforce that on my brother or my sister you know i i would yeah. prefer to allow them to sort of dwell in the mystery as well it's 
it's very it does seem sort of very patristic in its sort of uh, willingness to um, articulate what's most important and allow for mystery where where it seems most appropriate. I remember having a conversation with a brother priest one time who we were looking over a speech by you know some some Anglican prelate or another and noticing how few Anglicans he was quoting. He was particularly quoting mm. from a from one one other strand outside of Anglicanism, and as I was reflecting on on that conversation, it occurred to me that probably the reason why that was noticed was because of you know certain churchmanship partisanship, right? And it's going to be it would be actually very very difficult to have a two-hour speech by an Anglican that's quoting from a bunch of people to only quote from Anglicans. <laughs> because we all, all of us in, in our tradition, draw from the other traditions. And I think right. that's a good thing. I think Absolutely. that is a good thing. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, I, I think that, when, and especially if you can sort of embrace this sort of commitment to... You know, sort of the the Augustinian dictum of uh, you know unity in essentials, um, but allowing you know grace in these non-essentials. Um, it allows you to actually take and glean wisdom openly and honestly from from these other uh, other sources and present them as, hey, this this is a really this has been very helpful for my own understanding of what's going on here but you don't have to present them as sort of necessary for salvation or necessary for communing in our church and that sort of thing sort of takes the takes the edge off a little bit it allows you to be a more open sort of purveyor of of the wisdom that's found throughout christendom i agree i agree well, uh, with all that being said, do you want to get this last paragraph here and uh, we'll see what he has to say? Yes, let's see. It is not fanciful to say that in the Anglican writers of the 17th century, we find the chalcedon of Eucharistic theology. The perils alike of transubstantiation and receptionism are avoided. The one because it implies a docetic view of the divine operation in the Eucharist, utterly inconsistent with that operation in the sacramental processes considered as a whole, the other because it points to what in the language of the present day might be called sacramental epiphenomenalism. And here again, as in the Christology of Chalcedon, the middle way is not compromise, it is direction. Oh, it's that age-old issue of sacramental epiphenomenalism. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the, the phrase that's on the tongues of every Anglican from, from this side of the Atlantic to the other. <laughs> uh, now, I, that, is, um, that is the first time I've heard that phrase. How about you, yes, Father? I, I must confess I had to look it up just now. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that it's this. Epiphenomenalism is the view that mental events are caused by physical events in the brain, but have no effects upon any physical events. 
Behavior is caused by muscles that contract upon receiving neural, neural impulses, and neural impulses are generated by input from other neurons or from the sense organs. Um, so I guess what he's saying there is that receptionism makes that the sacrament doesn't do anything. Isn't really a sacrament. Yeah, it doesn't really yeah. do anything. It's just it's just your brain perceiving that it does stuff. Right. Um, and so and I would the, push back is that that's that's not what reception I mean that's what that's not what receptionism the way a lot of Anglicans in the past have looked at it is and that's mm -hmm. not receptionism the way that Calvin would have done it. And it almost seems as though he's saying well Calvin's view wasn't receptionist because he right. does admit earlier that um, that Calvin's view was prevalent and he doesn't necessarily say that as a, a bad thing so um yeah there's what if he should have said memorialism rather than receptionism perhaps um although it his this uh definition of epiphenomenalism does it's, it's actually funny because i thought receptionism but then i also thought hmm i wonder if that couldn't be said of transubstantiation too <laughs> in, in in an odd way because of well and here it, I actually remember running across an essay arguing that um, that the reformed view of the Eucharist is actually closer to transubstantiation um, than say uh, Lutheran theories of ubiquity or um, maybe more Eastern mystical views which is sort of an interesting to think about um, if transubstantiation does sort of have a more spiritual and less carnal uh, implication, which might be closer to the Reformed view in particular ways, or at the very least with the idea that it's a spiritual body and a spiritual blood. So, I mean, it's, there's, there may be something there, I'm not sure. And he, he's, he, he seems to hear um, identify transubstantiation with docetism. Um, and for our listener, docetism was a Gnostic point of view that said um, that Christ only seemed to have a physical body, but mm -hmm. he was actually just spirit. And the physical body was just an illusion. It was, it was fake. Um, you know, I kind of think of that episode of um, Doctor Who, kind of the reboot, where um, you find out that for a bunch of the season, one of the characters wasn't real, but was, you know, this slimy flesh thing that had been um, animated by, by by her thoughts or something like that. And she thought she was there, but she was actually somewhere else. Oh, heavens. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, oh, that's, a, that's a, a great story arc. Um, one of my favorites. But uh uh, well, which doctor was that? Because my kids are—they uh, have become Whovians, and they're pretty into the eleventh doctor right now. So um, this would have been number eleven. Uh, this would okay. have been number eleven. Yeah, Matt Smith. All right. Um, so I think it's that 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 storyline is either in the—I think it's the second or third Smith season. It's one of the ones with Amy and Rory as the companions. Okay. And and it has some docetic uh, implications, it would seem. It, it, it does, and and I and I think 
I, <laughs> well, at least that's the way I kind of I kind of picture docetism in my head, and maybe right. that's because I'm inserting my uh, Doctor Who into Gnosticism rather than the other way around. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. But, well, I do think yeah. there's there's maybe an unfortunate tendency to take some of these disagreements we have within Christendom. And I mean, as you, as you articulated earlier, that sort of both reformed and Lutheran on either side of the Eucharistic debate sort of claim that the other is deep down, uh, imbibing in some one ancient heresy or the other, you know? And and it's like, well, much as there may be a point to be derived there, and it can be helpful to sort of understand the concerns, I'm not sure if that's how I would lead out in a productive conversation that has any intention of, of a, attempting a resolution, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and they really are not the same. They're, they're really not the same things at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's... it's yeah, I think that's that is just elevating the argument beyond what it needs to be, because I, I think I think you can have good discussions on those disagreements without rising to the level of, you know, oh, you're just an Aryan in disguise, you're just mm-hmm. uh, you know whatever, and yeah, well, you know, it's the same thing with the you know docetic view. He says here, okay, transubstantiation. I think the reason why he's saying that is because. Um, it only in transubstantiation, their understanding is that it only seems to be bread and wine, but it's right. really the body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. On 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 a level on any level that really matters, it's it's been changed. You know, those accidents might remain, but the substance has been changed. Right. And I do definitely see a philosophical problem with that. I definitely see a scriptural problem with that because you know saint paul continues to call them both the body and blood of christ but he also calls them the bread and wine mm-hmm. i mean you seem to have both both things occurring on some level however whatever that looks like philosophically you know being able to claim them both is just the scriptural language but that, that that's not the same thing as saying okay well you know that's just catholic gnosticism there <laughs> right yeah i think um you know, there's a point to be made and distinguish distinctions to be made, but um, and and yes, this is one of the points where Lutheran and Reformed and um, of course the Anglican tradition all agree that um, regardless of what else is going on, there most certainly never stops being bread and wine involved, right? Yeah. So, and then it just kind of becomes a matter of trying to determine what this presence is, the nature of of Christ's presence, his body, his blood, his locale, and and whatever role we may or may not have in that. So um, certainly not things that we're going to uh, resolve here and now as uh, the miserable offenders, but um, at the very least, hopefully we've... uh, helped our audience to think through some of these issues and get a feeling for what's at stake and um, why on earth people would make such a big deal out of these things anyways. And, and I think just to kind of, this this was the big thing that stuck out to me when I read this this whole section was 
Um, when he says that the Anglican writers avoided receptionism, I think he's just wrong about that. <laughs> um, you, you reception, a form of receptionism is not uncommon in Anglican writing. Um, really until you, you get to the, to the Anglo Catholic movement of the 19th century. Yeah. And, and, I and now couldn't agree more. Yeah, you know, and, and and part of it is is that that the focus in, in Anglican sacramental theology is take and eat, take and drink, which, which is why, again, until the Anglo-Catholic movement, you see a hesitation towards reserving the sacrament. It's not because of a denial of the real presence. It's because that's not what it's there for. Right. An Anglican monstrance doesn't really make any sense right yeah i agree and um this is this is food indeed and so which again is part of that anglican practicality practically what is it there for to take and eat absolutely yeah and 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 i think there's you know we can find traces of an emphasis on um consecration in the early anglican writers as well Sure. Um, but that's never uh, to the detriment of the importance of the reception either. And so I actually, personally, my view is that it's both and rather yeah, than either too. or. Yeah, um, and I think you can find that in these 17th century writers. I think it's uh, it's consonant with what our formally, formularies actually teach. If you hold the 39 articles in one hand and the Book of Common Prayer in the other. And um, it, it, in a way, it allows you to sort of hold both of these truths and embrace them without necessarily having to go down the uh, rabbit trail of trying to justify all the ways in which that works, um, which these other traditions become, uh, well, they spend a lot of energy doing. He mentioned a couple paragraphs ago, um, Usher. Um, mm -hmm. our, our, so that'd be Archbishop um, Usher during the uh, primate of, of Ireland during the right. a lot of the Caroline time. There's a great new book um, out that has um, a collection of Usher's writings yes. on church unity that I've been really enjoying. From our good friends at the Davenant Trust. Uh, Damnit Institute. Right, right. But yeah, that's that's been really. I mean, and Usher is no friend to um, anything that he would perceive as Romanism or Papalism. But I mean, he he is clearly reformed. But his sacramental theology is really robust, as is mm -hmm. his his ecclesiology. I, I I actually think our bishops who. Uh, tend to function a lot like CEOs. I mean, if they <laughs> tended to function like noblemen in the Middle Ages, today they tend to function mm -hmm. like CEOs a lot of times. And I don't think any of them really like that fact. <laughs> right. some of the bishops that, yeah. that I've known personally. Um, they, they, could, they, could, they could use to learn a little bit from Usher on mm. the Episcopacy. Excellent. Yeah, well, I think uh, that's the second book recommendation from you today, and uh, we, <laughs> we can just add those to our uh, Amazon 
wish lists or uh, or just order it today, folks. Um, I'm sure you will not be uh, disappointed. No, I I would love to uh, look into that Usher book. It sounds really good, and I do like. I do think that figures like that who are um, their their Protestant uh, sort of character is impeccable, but their sacramental theology is robust, as you put it. And when you can um, read as many people who sound just like that as possible um, and who sort of do so without necessarily even, you know, the great thing is that very often some of these older writers, they don't make a show of it it just sort of stems naturally out of right. uh, out of their devotion and their in their personal theology and so that's that's really what we want to be we want to be um, word and sacrament people and the one of the best ways to do that is to do uh, what Lewis suggests and read old books or or reprints of old books, hey. Or reprints of old books. That's right. They don't. They don't. You get the the musty smell will have to be uh, earned with time over time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Great. Well, I think this is a perfect stopping place for us. Um, if you've been following along, there's only one Roman numeral section left of Paul Elmer Moore's The Spirit of Anglicanism, and uh, we look forward to tackling that. With you all listening and following along, be sure to tweet us or follow us on Facebook. And please, um, your comments and your encouragement, uh, and even uh, even your your arguments, will be welcomed. We we look forward to uh, engaging with you all. Great. Well, thanks, Father. It's been a good it's been a good conversation. We'll uh, catch you next time. Until then. All right. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.